0: Thirty-two by William Sprague, Evils to be avoided in connection with revivals. Romans 14 verse 16, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. This direction of the apostle was suggested by a particular case, which was the subject of controversy in the church at Rome when this epistle was written. You will instantly perceive, however, that the rule here prescribed is of universal application and that it is founded in general principles of Christian prudence and charity. The design of it is not only to direct us in the practice of that which is good, but to lead us to unite wisdom with her pious activity, that we may, so far as possible, prevent incidental evil from being connected with our well-meant efforts, and that our good may be inoffensive and irreproachable. As there is no part of Christian conduct in relation to which this direction is not applicable, so if I mistake not, it applies especially to the part which the church is called to take in a revival of religion, indeed to the whole economy of her revival, for as there is no department of religious action in which even good men are not liable to err, so there is no other field in which a Christian is called to labor, where there is greater danger of his being misled. There is in the minds of most men a tendency to extremes. And that tendency is never so likely to discover itself as in a season of general religious excitement. When men are greatly excited on any subject, we know that they are in far more danger of forming erroneous judgments, in adopting improper courses and when they are in circumstances to yield themselves to sober reflection. Now as there is often great excitement in connection with a revival, There is a common danger which exists in all cases of highly excited feeling that our honest endeavors to do right will result in more or less that is wrong. In other words, that we shall give occasion for our good to be evil spoken of. The conclusion to which we should be brought on this subject from the very constitution of human nature is in exact accordance with what we know of the history of revivals. There always has been, mingled with these scenes of divine power and grace, more or less of human infirmity and indiscretion, and in some cases, no doubt, in which there have even been many genuine conversions, there has been just reason to say, What is the wheat to the chaff? To say nothing of revivals in modern times, whoever will read the history of the early revivals in New England, while he will evidence enough that the presence and power of God was in them, if he be a Christian, will regard the record of them as occupying one of the most blessed chapters in the history of the church. We'll nevertheless find just cause to weep, that they should have been clouded so much by the mistakes and infirmities even of good men. But those good men, some of them at least, lived to be satisfied that they were in the wrong, and it is their honor that they acknowledged it. And it were impossible to read the record of their acknowledgment. Without feeling a sentiment of veneration for their characters, and without wishing that the ears into which they fell might, so far as they were themselves concerned, be blotted from the memory of the church. I am aware, my friends, that in endeavoring to present before you the abuses to which revivals are liable, and with which they have always been in a greater or less degree connected, I am undertaking a task, of peculiar delicacy, and I confess to you that nothing but a strong and honest sense of duty would have led me to attempt it. I will state to you the considerations which have arisen to occasion this reluctance, in a manner in which I have felt myself obliged to dispose of them. In the first place, I can hardly doubt that an attempt to expose these evils may appear to some unnecessary. But so thought not the illustrious Jonathan Edwards, when his discriminating and mighty mind was occupied in framing some of the most judicious treatises which the world has ever seen, for the very purpose of guarding against the abuses of revivals. On the title page of those books, the church has written her own name, and she claims them as her property, in a higher sense than almost anything else except the Bible, and it is not manifest that that illustrious man judged rightly in composing them, and that the church has judged rightly in the estimate she has formed of them. For who does not perceive that if revivals of religion become corrupted, there is poison in the fountain whose streams are expected to gladden and purify, and who is that competent to judge? will doubt that those treatises have done more than any other uninspired productions to maintain the purity of revivals from the period in which they were written to the present. If Jonathan Edwards has rendered good service to the Church by writing those immortal books, then surely it cannot be unnecessary for other ministers to direct their humbler efforts to the same end. It is just as necessary now to distinguish between true and false experience in between right and wrong conduct, and a revival of religion, as it ever has been in any preceding period. In a manner in which this duty is practically regarded, must always determine in a great degree the amount of blessing which any revival will secure. But it may be said also, that what I am about to attempt should be avoided because it is fitted to awaken controversy. I acknowledge that controversy on the subject of religion is not in itself desirable, for it is exceeding liable to wake up the bad passions of men. Nevertheless, there are some cases in which we shall all agree that it is necessary to hazard the evils that may result from it. No being on earth ever awakened a more violent religious controversy than Jesus Christ. But if it had not been for this, where now would have been our blessed Christianity? So also Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and a whole host of Reformers excited a controversy concerning religion, which had well nigh set the world on fire. But if it had not existed, what evidence have you that the Church would to this hour witness a glorious Reformation? Jonathan Edwards publisheth thoughts on the present revival of religion, and other invaluable works in connection with the same subject at the expense of being denounced even by some of his own brethren, as an enemy of revivals. But these publications have served to correct and prevent great abuses ever since, and if he had rendered the church no other service, for this alone she would have embalmed his memory. Controversy then, though it is never to be desired for its own sake, cannot always be declined in consistency with Christian obligation or without putting at fearful hazard the best interests of the church. In the present case, however, permit me to say that I have no intention to excite controversy by attacking any man or body of men. The evils which I shall endeavor to expose are none of them peculiar to any one denomination of Christians or to any particular period of the church, but they have existed at various periods and among different sects and there is always danger that they will exist from the very constitution of human nature. If it should be said, with some of the remarks which I shall offer ought to be withheld, underground that they admit of application to an existing state of things in the church, I acknowledge that that seems to me a strong reason why they should not be withheld. For if the abuses of which I shall speak actually exist in our own times, we are in the greater danger of falling into them and in the greater need of being guarded against them, whereas if they were only evils of other days I might, in speaking of them, seem to be beating the air. But I utterly disclaim all responsibility in respect to any particular application. I only say that such abuses have existed, do exist, but my province in respect to them is not to charge them upon any individuals, or upon any particular portion of the church, but to endeavor to guard you against them. The only point for which I hold myself responsible is that these are really evils and ought to be avoided. It may also occur to some that an exhibition of the evils, which are sometimes connected with revivals, may be fitted to injure the general cause by leading many to the conclusion that if ministers themselves acknowledge that there is so much chaff in them Probably the whole is delusion and worthy to be regarded only with indifference or contempt. That some men may have taken refuge from the convictions of conscience in this miserable delusion, far be it from me to question. Nevertheless, I am constrained to believe that it is a rare case in which any good cause is ultimately injured by telling the honest truth respecting it. I am constrained to believe. The did is a rare case in which any good cause is ultimately injured by telling the honest truth, respecting it. Besides, you may be assured that the cause of revivals is far more likely to suffer by an attempt, on the part of its friends, to pass off everything for gold than by giving to that which is really draws its proper name. Suppose you should introduce a mere man of the world, if you please, a man of high intellectual culture into a revival in which there should be gross disorder and fanaticism, and you should endeavor without any qualifying remarks to impress him with the importance of the work that was going forward. It is altogether probable, he would say, or at least think, that if it were a revival, he had seen enough of it, and if that were religion, the less he had of it, the better." But suppose you should say to him, of all that is disorderly, that is a mere operation of human infirmity or passion, the chaff mingling with the wheat, and of all that is good and praiseworthy, that is a genuine operation of the Holy Spirit. And he would not improbably, in view of that distinction, acknowledge the reality and importance of the work. You cannot, even if you would. Make sensible men think, in ordinary cases, that that is religion or part of a revival of religion which is not so, and any attempt of this kind is exceeding liable to awaken their hostility to the whole subject. Irreligious men are generally ready to admit the correctness of any distorted accounts of religion, especially if they get them on so good authority as that of Christians themselves, for every such account furnishes them with an argument against the whole subject and puts their consciences into a still deeper lethargy, and finally I can suppose it may appear to some that any attempt to expose the evils incidentally connected with revivals may be fraught with danger, inasmuch as it is acknowledged on all hands that these evils exist among good men, and with them are connected with much that is praiseworthy, and it may be thought safest to let the tares and wheat flourish together lest an attempt to remove the former should expose the latter. As to the fact that the evils to which I refer have been found among truly devoted men, there is no ground for question. Even the well-known James Davenport, who was for a while an apostle of fanaticism, and who publicly denounced and prayed for by name many of the most eminent ministers of New England as the enemies of revivals, was nevertheless beyond a peradventure. A good man had thought that in all his irregularities he was faithfully serving his master, but he did not think so always, for he afterwards penitently and publicly acknowledged his error, and even justified the severest censure which his conduct had received. Yes, I repeat, good men do fall into these excesses, and so also good men are sanctified but in part. And as we do not fear that any scriptural endeavours to purify them from remaining corruption will exert a bad influence upon their Christian graces, so we ought not to apprehend that any judicious efforts to correct the errors to which I refer will serve in any degree to abate their truly Christian zeal and activity. There are cases I acknowledge in which great evils must be tolerated for a season, because any attempt to remove them would only make way for greater ones. But nothing is more certain. Then that to tolerate evil and good men because they are good men is directly contrary both to the spirit and letter of the gospel. And besides, the very fact that there is much that is praiseworthy in their characters and much that is benign in their influence is a reason why we should do all in our power to remove whatever may in any degree impair their usefulness. We would treat good men in this respect as in every other, while we would acknowledge them good. We would strive to make them better and more useful. I have now stated to you the grounds of the delicacy which I have felt in bringing this subject before you, on the one hand, and the grounds of my conviction that my duty as a Christian minister would not permit me to pass it by. On the other, some of the evils to which I have referred in general I proceed now more distinctly to consider. Number 1. One prominent evil to be guarded against in a revival is the cherishing of false hopes. I surely need not undertake to prove that this is an evil and one appalling in magnitude. For a false hope at the gate of eternity is a passport to hell. And such a hope once indulged is exceedingly apt to hold its place till the last. Though it sometimes lurks in the bosom almost unobserved even by the individual who is the subject of it. And where it is given up. It more commonly makes way for a kind of vague skepticism in respect to all experimental religion and steals a conscience and a great measure against future conviction. There are doubtless some who indulge a false hope that are subsequently awakened and become true Christians. But in general such a hope is undoubtedly the best security which the adversary could desire for keeping the soul under his entire dominion. Now, I admit that in every case of supposed conversion there is a liability to a false hope. Let a revival be conducted with as much wisdom as it may, and there is danger that there will be some cases of self-deception. And the reason is obvious, for the first evidence upon which the mind fastens is a change of feeling that some of the operations of animal passion appear so much like truly gracious affections that even advanced Christians often mistake in their endeavors to distinguish between them. Certainly then there is far greater danger that those who have had no experience in religion, and who withal are eagerly looking out to cast the first gleam of evidence that they have been renewed, there is a far greater danger that they will mistake some accidental and joyous a temporary commotion of the animal feelings for the exercise of a principle of true piety. I am sure that every person who has been conversant with revivals must acknowledge that this is in accordance with fact. Who that is mingled even in the most genuine revival has not witnessed, in some instances at least, a painful exemplification of the character of the stony-ground hearers, in whom for a while there was much that looked like religion, but because the principle was lacking, it all gradually withered away. Now, if there is danger of the indulgence of a false hope in every case, there is special danger of it under particular circumstances. Change which takes place in conversion is of a moral nature. It has its seat in the soul and nowhere else. There is no natural connection between this change and any bodily postures or movements. If any idea be held out, that conversion is usually associated with the loss of bodily strength, or with any remarkable bodily motions, or that it is more likely to happen to an individual in one place or one posture than another, where the same truths are proclaimed and the same prayers offered, there is great danger that this will lead to self-deception, that, with unreflecting minds at least, the bodily exercise which profits little will be put in place of that godliness which is a promise of eternal life. There is danger that the individual will substitute what is considered an external expression of anxiety for his soul, for the internal workings of genuine conviction. If there be something of true conviction, there is danger that he will mistake the physical act of taking a particular place or posture, which is spoken of as peculiarly favorable to conversion. For the spiritual act of yielding up the soul to the Savior. Again, the instrument by which every conversion is effected is God's truth. If then ministers during a revival fail to uphold the truth and its distinctive and commanding features, they confine themselves principally to impassioned addresses. An earnest, exhortatory appeals There is great reason to apprehend many spurious conversions. God requires indeed that the truth should be preached in an earnest manner, but it must be the truth that is preached. And not only he will honor in the conversion of men, I appeal to the whole record of revivals for evidence, that where anything has been substituted to any extent in place of this, where exhortation instead of holding its proper place has taken a place of instruction, there has been the least of sound, deep, abiding religious impression, and there have been found the greatest number of hopeful converts whose subsequent experience has proved that they had no root in themselves. Still further, the change which a soul experiences in regeneration is a change of mighty import, nothing less than a new creation, old things passing away and all things becoming new. Any course of instruction, then, which should leave the impression that it may be accomplished independently of a divine influence, or that a man has nothing to do but to wish himself a Christian in order to become one, or that it is as easy to change one's heart from the love of sin to the love of holiness as to change one's purpose in respect to any worldly concern, or to perform any physical act. Any such course of instruction, I say, must necessarily expose to self-deception, because it represents the conversion of the soul to God as comparatively a small matter, and if that impression be gained, how reasonable to expect that the individual should suppose himself converted, when he is not so. The way of effecting true conversions, no doubt, is to represent the work to be done in all of its magnitude, and then to bring out the very mind of the spirit in respect to the manner of doing it, and the means by which it is to be accomplished. I think you will agree with me, my friends, that in any of the circumstances which I have here supposed there is special danger that sinners will take up with false hopes. There is yet another course of treatment which is extremely well adapted to cherish and confirm such hopes. Let the sinner who has actually deceived himself hear his supposed conversion spoken of with as much confidence as if it were known to be a genuine one. Let him hear himself constantly numbered among the converts, and by those in whose judgment and experience he confides. Let there be little or nothing said that implies a possibility of his being deceived, and let everything that is done in respect to him seem to take it for granted that he stands on safe ground. And above all, let him immediately be introduced into the church, and if he ever wakes out of that delusion, believe me, it will be less than a miracle. This last step particularly is fitted more than any other to entrench him in a habit of self-security, which he will probably carry with him to his deathbed. Number two, another of the evils to be guarded against in a revival is the spirit of self-confidence. Even advanced Christians are liable to this, and sometimes exhibited in a degree that is truly humiliated. While they are witnessing the powerful operation of God's spirit in the conviction and conversion of sinners and are actively engaged in helping on the work they lose sight to some degree of the fact that they are but unworthy instruments and though there may be an acknowledgment of divine agency occasionally upon their lips, yet in their hearts they are really taken to themselves a glory. I need not speak of the manner in which the spirit discovers itself in a part which they bear in a revival no one who witnesses its operation can easily mistake it. But I may say with confidence that wherever it exists, it mars the beauty and detracts from the purity and hinders the efficacy of the work. But I refer here more particularly to a self-confident spirit, as it is often exhibited by young converts. And let me say that the very same course of treatment to which I have just adverted is being fitted to cherish and confirm a false hope is adapted to awaken even in those who have truly been converted. A spirit of self-confidence, this, is a great evil, as it respects their own growth and grace. Wherever it exists, there will be little of self-examination, little sense of the need of being constantly taught and guided by the Holy Spirit, little of that humility which becomes a sinner redeemed by the blood of Christ and saved by sovereign grace. And I may add a little of that gratitude which looks in acts of faith and praise toward the Lamb that was slain. That there may be much of zeal connected with self-confidence in a young Christian cannot be questioned, though it may reasonably be doubted whether even that is altogether of a heavenly origin. But, whether it be so or not, it usually happens where it is found in connection with this spirit that the flame burns with diminished brightness until it has nearly died away. Nor is the spirit less prejudicial to the young Christian as connected with his usefulness. In a young convert especially, nothing is so lovely as humility. Let him show by his deportment rather than by his professions that he often turns his eye upon the hole of the pit from which he hopes he has been taken, that if he has obtained mercy he feels he deserves nothing but wrath, and that for aught he knows he may be indulging in the hope of the hypocrite. Certainly he has much to do to make his calling and election sure. I say let him manifest such a spirit in his conduct, and it will give him favor with all with whom he associates and it will secure him access to many hearts which might otherwise be barred against his influence. But let him, on the other hand, speak of his conversion as if it were sure and genuine. Let him refer with confidence to the very moment when it occurred. Let him talk of it as an event that has been brought about by mere human agency, and let him say to others by his deportment, Stand by. I am holier than you and you may rest assured, especially if he be a young person, that he can have little hope of accomplishing much for the cause of Christ. There will be something in his very manner to repel those whom he should desire to win, and though he may console himself in the view of his unsuccessful efforts by thinking and speaking of the obstinacy of sinners, yet it were more reasonable that he should humble himself that if he be a Christian, His conduct in this very particular indicates so much of remaining infirmity and corruption. 3. Another lamentable evil incident to revivals is the spirit of censoriousness. No doubt there is much in the conduct of many Christians and ministers at such a time to give occasion for regret. And if they appear cold and worldly, it is only a Christian duty that we should affectionately admonish them of their error and endeavor to render them more spiritual and active. But this is something quite different from that censorious denouncing spirit to which I here refer, which, though it be exercised in reference to religion, is nothing better than the spirit of the world, and it is easy to see how it gets into operation even in good men. Their minds are awake to the great subject of the soul's salvation, and they are oppressed by its amazing weight. They feel that something efficient ought to be done, must be done, to wake up a slumbering world, and they desire that all Christians should go along with them in their efforts. In this state of mind, they are prepared for nothing but cordial cooperation, and where they do not find it, corrupt nature takes advantage of the excitement they have reached and the disappointment they feel, and perhaps with all of a naturally ardent temperament, to discharge itself not only in grievous complaints, but sometimes even in bitter invective. This is a most favorable account of the exercise of the spirit. There are other cases, no doubt, in which it is identified with the spirit of self-righteousness in which the secret and prevailing feeling of the heart is. That heaping censure upon others is an easy way of laying up treasure in heaven. That to complain of the coldness and worldliness of our fellow Christian. It is an evidence of zeal and devotion in ourselves. But let the spirit have its origin in whatever state of mind it may. We shall all agree that it is a serious evil and ought to be guarded against with the utmost care. It is not uncommon to find a spirit marking the conduct of private Christians towards each other. There are some who will condemn their brethren as cold Christians or perhaps even no Christians at all because with less of constitutional ardor than themselves. Impossibly possibly more prudence. They are not prepared to concur at once in every measure that may be suggested for the advancement of a revival, or because they talk less of their own feelings than some others, or because they attend fewer public religious exercises than could be desired, or because from extreme constitutional diffidence they may, either properly or improperly, decline taking part in such exercises. Many a Christian, who has been laboring faithfully and judiciously for the salvation of sinners, whose closet has witnessed to the fervour of his devotion, and whose conversation has been according to the gospel of Christ, has not only been suspected by his brethren of coldness for some one or other of the reasons just mentioned, but has been marked and denounced and even prayed for as dead to the interests of revivals, if not dead in trespasses and sins. On the other hand, it is not to be questioned that men of a cautious habit who are constitutionally afraid of excitement sometimes unjustly accuse their more zealous brethren of rashness and impute to spiritual pride what really ought to be set to the account of an honest devotedness to Christ especially if real and great abuses actually exist they may be so much afraid of coming within the confines of disorder that they may rush to the opposite extreme of formality and from that cold region they may look off upon the Christian who evinces nothing more than a consistent and enlightened zeal, and hail him as if he were burning to death in the very torrid zone of enthusiasm. The same spirit which discovered itself in private Christians towards each other is also frequently manifest in respect to different churches. A church which is abundantly blessed with revivals may condemn with the high hand another church in which... Though religion may not be in a languishing state, yet there may never have been any general and sudden effusion of the Holy Spirit, and this may be attributed most unjustly to a cold ministry, or to some signal want of faithfulness in the members when the fact that the church is really in a flourishing state, its interest being sustained by gradual rather than by sudden accessions, is entirely overlooked and where there is not only the absence of revivals, but the spiritual interests of a church are really depressed. It is still more common to hear the case spoken of with an air of unchristian severity, and not unfrequently there is something like a sentence of reprobation passed upon the whole body, as if they were indiscriminately a company of backsliders, or where a church differs from another in its views of the economy of revivals. It may denounce that other is chilled with the frost of apathy on the one hand, or scorched with the fires of fanaticism on the other. When is the case may be, the church that is the object of censor may hold correct and scriptural ground. Any church, whether it be distinguished by its zeal or its lack of zeal, that takes the responsibility of dealing out violent censors upon its sister churches, especially if they are walking in the faith and order of the gospel certainly assumes a degree of responsibility which it can ill afford to bear, and it will have no just ground for surprise if it should meet a painful retribution, not only in bringing back upon itself the censors of men, but in bringing down upon itself the displeasure of God. And I am constrained to go further and say that ministers have sometimes erred in the same manner, judging each other as fanatics or as drones. Some supposing that their brethren were setting the world on fire when they shed around them no worse light than that of sober, consistent zeal, and others, that their brethren were in a very valley of death as it respects religious feeling, when the principle of spiritual life was beating in strong and vigorous pulsations. I will say nothing of what exists on this subject in our own day, but I refer you to what has been in other days. I point you, for example, to men who have long since been in their graves, and whose joy in the world of glory will not be interrupted by our learning wisdom from the imperfections of which they are now entirely free, and which they have lived bitterly to lament. In the revivals which are recorded in the early part of the history of New England, there were a considerable number of ministers and among them the individual to whom I have already referred is distinguished for its extravagance, who declared a mass of their brethren to be unconverted men, who denounced them as leading souls to hell, and who endeavored by every means in their power to alienate from them their congregations, they might bring them under the influence of what they regarded as more faithful ministry. This unhappy faction from the nature of the case was not of long continuance, It cannot be because it lived upon the highest excitement, but it lasted long enough to counteract to a melancholy extent the benign effects of that work of grace, long enough to entail upon at least two generations its destructive consequences. If you read the history of those days, or rather of those men, there will be everything to make you weep until you come to the delightful fact that they saw their error and acknowledged it and wept over it themselves. I know of no way in which a censorious spirit can discover itself, whether in ministers or private Christians. that is so revolting, and I may say dreadful, as in prayer. The fact must be acknowledged, humbling as it is, that men have sometimes seemed to be pouring out at the foot of the throne their resentments against cold Christians and ministers, and have even assumed the office of judging their hearts and have told the Almighty Being apparently for the sake of telling the congregation that they were as dead as the tenants of the tomb. Brethren, no apology can be offered for this, not even the semblance of an apology. Christian charity herself can record nothing better concerning such a prayer than that it breathes the spirit of the world in one of its most odious forms. Whatever degree of religious indifference may be called it forth, it certainly cannot furnish a juster cause for humiliation than does the prayer itself. Number four. Inconstancy in religion is another evil to be avoided in connection with revivals. Men are exceedingly prone to vibrate from one extreme to the other, and it is a law of human nature that a very powerful excitement in respect to the same individuals cannot long be sustained. Hence there is danger the Christian from the excitement to which they are liable during a revival will gradually fall into a state of spiritual languor and will even give occasion for the cutting inquiry, What do you more than others? Now, what might be expected from the very tendencies of human nature to happen, we find actually does happen. Both in respect to individuals and churches, who has not seen the Christian tyranny or revival seeming to be constantly on the mount both of enjoyment and of action, willing apparently to wear himself out in the service of his master and for the salvation of souls, and in a few months after comparatively silent and inactive and insensible on the great subject which has so lately occupied him, almost to the exclusion of every other, And who that has been much conversant with revivals has not seen a church during one of these seasons of special blessing, waking up to a lively sense of obligation, sending up united and holy and strong supplications and laboring incessantly with an eye now on the cross and now on the judgment seat, and now on the crown of life in the same church at a subsequent period apparently forgetting their responsibility, becoming cold in their devotions, relaxing in all their efforts for the salvation of men. In one case, you would have supposed from their fidelity that they were marching on to a high state in glory. In the other, you would especially, if you had turned your eye off from the Bible, have almost been ready to doubt the perseverance of the saints. Now, wherever this state of things exists, it is a serious evil, both as respects the church and the world. It is so to the church because it mars the consistency and beauty of her character, lessens the amount of her communion with her head, and renders her light comparatively dim and feeble when she is commanded to let it shine with a steady brightness. It is an evil to the world inasmuch as it casts an air of suspicion in the view of many over the reality and importance of revivals, and leads them to imagine that Christians worked hard one day to purchase a privilege of doing nothing the next and that a revival is a manner to be got up and laid aside at the pleasure of those who engage in it. It leads them, moreover, to think less than any otherwise would of the good influence of Christians when they attempt to exert it. And when, in a more favored season, they show themselves active in endeavor to arouse up the sinner's slumbering conscience, not improbably their exertions will be in a from his recollection of their indifference at other times, and his impression that their zeal is a mere creature of circumstances. You will all agree with me that this is a great evil, and ought to be guarded against with the utmost caution. One means of avoiding it is by endeavoring to keep down animal passion, especially at the height of the revival when it is most likely to be awakened. For the stronger the excitement of the animal nature, the greater the tendency to a universal reaction, Another means is by endeavoring to keep up spiritual feeling when the general excitement attending a revival begins to pass away. For that is a critical time when religious languor usually first creeps over the soul. By using the proper caution at these two points, the church may effectually avoid the evil which I am considering. And instead of becoming listless at the close of a revival, she may show that she has renewed her strength for subsequent labors and conflicts. Number five, another evil to be guarded against in connection with revivals is ostentation. I don't refer here to the manner in which revivals are sometimes conducted. have adverted to that already, but to the manner in which they are represented, both in common communication and through the press. And I cannot doubt that in respect to both, there is much that no discreet Christian can contemplate without regret and disapprobation. It is not uncommon during the progress of a revival and sometimes in an early stage of it to hear its glorious results spoken of with as much confidence as if they had actually been realized. Particular religious exercises which may have been attended with unusual solemnity are represented as having secured a conversion, not only of a great but in a definite number of souls. One is represented as having preached, another as having prayed, Another is having talked so many sinners into the kingdom, perhaps the infidel, has professed suddenly to renounce his infidelity and embrace the Savior. Or perhaps a profligate has wept in view of his profligacy and resolved to enter upon a new life. These cases are confidently spoken of as instances of genuine conversion. And what is still worse, they are too often spoken of as such in the presence of the very persons who are the subjects of them. It is easy to see that if the individuals are true converts, the effect of this must probably be to inflate them with spiritual pride. If they are not true converts, it must fearfully aid the work of self-deception. It leaves a bad impression also upon the world, for it is the exact opposite of the humility, that sense of dependence, that disposition to acknowledge God in every spiritual blessing which constitutes some of the loveliest features of Christian character. But what I chiefly refer to under this article is the ostentatious complexion and the premature date of many of those narratives of revivals which are given to the world through our religious periodicals. It is only honest to acknowledge that many of them, though evidently dictated by a desire to do good, are yet eminently fitted to do evil. They are written in the midst of strong excitement when the mind is most in danger of mistaking shadows for substances when a strong hopes that much is about to be done are easily exchanged for a conviction that much has been actually accomplished. Hence all who are supposed to appear more serious than usual are reckoned as subjects of conviction, and all who profess the slightest change of feeling are set down as converts, and particularly instances are detailed in which very obstinate sinners have been made very humble, And then become entranced with bright visions of the Savior and other cases are mentioned in which a child is pressed forward into the kingdom in spite of the opposition of a wicked parent or a wife, notwithstanding she was persecuted by an ungodly husband. Now the narrative containing these particulars goes abroad into the world, and almost of course comes back immediately into the congregation whose religious state it professes to describe. And what thank you will probably be the effect, what will be upon those who here find it announced to the world that they have been converted, and perhaps read a high wrought, glowing story of their conversion, what especially must it be on those who are represented as having been the subjects of a miracle of grace, as having been great sinners, and now have become great saints. If they are really converted, the effect of this must be, as in the case just mentioned, to lessen their humility and open their hearts to temptation. If they are cherishing a false hope, it cannot fail to add to its strength. And if, before the narrative meets them, as a very supposable case, they have cast off their serious impressions and returned to the world, it must provoke and irritate them and thus fearfully increase their obduracy and render their salvation still more improbable. What effect will this be likely to have upon those who are designated? If not by name, yet so as to be identified as having been distinguished for their malignant opposition to the work, it will awaken in them the spirit of fins. It will embolden them to fight still more furiously against God and against his people, and not improbably to do that which will seal their perdition. And what must it effect upon the surrounding world? What, when they compare the written statement with what has fallen under their own observation, and find a sad disagreement? Must it not be to create and cherish a prejudice against all revivals? Must it not throw open an air of suspicion over every statement respecting them which they either hear or read? Must it not even bring in question the veracity of good men? You will by no means understand me as intimating any disapprobation of publishing at a proper time, even detailed accounts of revivals, so far from this that I regard it as due to the church, due to the honor of him whom we acknowledge as a great agent in revivals, that such accounts should in due time be sent forth. But let them not in ordinary cases be written until the true results of the revival are in some measure known." Certainly let them be confined to palpable facts which no one can gainsay. Let them be framed with a deliberate recollection that they are to be scanned by multitudes, that they are to exert an influence either for or against the cause of revivals, and that God is not honored but offended by the least attempt to go beyond the truth. Even in recording triumphs of his grace, It is a matter of importance that all narratives of this kind should be furnished by competent and responsible persons, those who have opportunity to know the facts, and ability properly to estimate them. While it cannot be questioned that there are many instances at the present day in which the evil of which I am speaking is strikingly exemplified, it is an occasion for joy that there are many other cases in which revivals are detailed seasonably judiciously and in a manner fitted in all respects to subserve the cause of truth and piety number six undervaluing divine institutions and divine truth is another evil which often exists in connection with revivals it is common and no doubt right too during a season of special attention to religion to increase the number of occasional services during the week and especially the number of meetings for social prayer and it is desirable that Christians should feel a deep interest in these exercises, and should regard it as regarded, not less a duty than a privilege to engage in them, as their circumstances may admit. But they are not to be considered in a strict sense as divine institutions, for though there is a fair warrant for them in the general spirit of the gospel, and as we believe, even in a direct sanction in an apostolic usage, Yet the regulation of them is a manner which God has been pleased to leave to the wisdom of the church. And whenever Christians exalt them to an equality with those institutions which are strictly divine, they may expect to incur the displeasure of the master, as well as lose the benefit which these exercises are adapted when kept in their proper place to impart. But there is reason to apprehend that many Christians, during a season of revival, actually do, and their feelings attach an importance to these services, which is even paramount to that which they recognize as belonging to the public exercises of the Lord's day. The sacred feeling of the heart, there is reason to believe often is that to attend public worship upon the Sabbath, though it is a duty. Is yet too little in it that is distinctive and out of the common course to be regarded with a very deep interest, whereas those services which are observed during the week and which seem more like a free will offering rise in their estimation to the highest degree of importance. There is in all this, no doubt, more or less, a self-righteousness, a sort of unacknowledged and perhaps undetected feeling did the eye of God rests upon them even with more favor when they are rendering him a service which he has left in some measure to their own discretion, than when they are walking in the plain and broad path of his direct commandments. These occasional services, I repeat, are not to be undervalued, for they are important helps in every point of view towards sustaining and carrying forward a revival. But that we may reap the benefit they are designed to secure, we must give them no the higher place, and the great head of the church is as manifestly assigned to them. And while there is danger that the social exercises which a church may establish during a revival may lead to too low a comparative estimation of the stated services of the Sabbath, there is perhaps equal danger that they may bring into some degree of disregard the duties of the closet, especially if these occasional exercises are greatly multiplied. The time which is requisite for attending them, besides other duties of a more secular nature, may leave but little opportunity for self-communion, reading the scriptures, and private prayer. And there is reason to fear that sometimes, at least, the Christian makes a compromise with his conscience for at least a partial neglect of these latter duties by calling to mind his exemplary diligence and constancy in respect to the former. And besides, there is no doubt that it lays his power under far less contribution to be engaged in a constant round of social exercises, which are fitted to excite the mind, than to enter into his private prayer closet, and commune with himself and apply the truths and precepts of the gospel for the regulation of his affections and conduct. It is to this practical air, I doubt not, that we are to attribute in a great degree the fact that many Christians who engage with much interest in a revival still seem to turn it to so little account of its respects their own personal piety. Nothing is more certain than that the neglect of closet duties, whatever other duties may be performed, must wither the believer's graces and render his Christian character sickly and inefficient. If you would avoid the evil which is here contemplated and secure the good which is aimed at by those who incur the evil, let God's institutions be kept in their proper place. Regard the public services of the Sabbath as far the most important which you can attend. Think it, however, a blessed privilege that you may meet for religious purposes frequently at other times, but never let such meetings be a substitute for secret devotion, and if the effect of them should ever be to keep you away from your closet. Or to give you a disrelish for it duties, you need no other evidence that there is something wrong, either that your attendance on these social services is too frequent or not with the right spirit, nor is there less danger that a revival may be perverted to the undervaluing of God's truth. At such a time, especially, men love to be excited And while those who hear the preaching of the word are apt to delight in those stirring and earnest appeals which are most fitted to rouse the feelings, there is a strong temptation on the part of ministers to feed his passion for excitement, limiting themselves to a few topics of exhortation rather than by holding up gospel truth in all its extent and fullness. And in this way it often comes to pass that there is an aversion contracted to instructive preaching. The doctrines of the Bible come to be regarded both by people and ministers as comparatively tame, and I hardly need say that as a consequence a ministry loses much of its real efficiency and a piety of the church languishes for lack of its appropriate nourishment. Nor is this all. It cannot be questioned that revivals are sometimes made the occasion not only of inspiring a disgust for sober scriptural doctrine, but of introducing into the church a flood of error. Ministers, in seasons of great excitement and in the desire of saying something that shall seize hold of the feelings, sometimes make unguarded expressions which involve some important error, and if these expressions seem to be followed by good effects, they are in danger of repeating them until they come really to adopt the error which is thus involved, and then again the excited multitude in such circumstances are usually carried away by the appearance of great zeal and earnestness. And he who evinces the most of these qualities is almost sure to be the favorite preacher, and if he be disposed to conmingle air with truth, there is every probability that in many instances, at least, the one will be received with the other without inquiry or suspicion. Such has been the history of the introduction and progress of some of the wildest reveries and grossest airs which have disturbed the peace and marred the purity of the church, like ministers and private Christians. Those who preach and those who hear, be alike, under guard against this tremendous evil.